Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. If you have a Bible this morning, you can turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And like Cody said, I guess you could say that we are now officially back into our regular rhythms in 2022 to services. Congratulations for waking up earlier. Uh, You're back at work from Christmas break, probably. The kids are back in school. Uh, And maybe for you, you're just one week into a new rhythm that you have, you know, that you're bound and determined to keep this year. You know, let's let's forget about 2021 and, and the thing that died, you know, the hopes and dreams. Like, you have a new rhythm that you're trying to incorporate. Maybe it's a new workout routine. Maybe it's a new diet. Maybe it's a new method of time management. That was, that was the last book I read in 2021 was a book on time management because I, I tend to live my life according to uh, a series of organized piles. Doesn't quite work, okay? So maybe it's, maybe it's time management. And I've heard that it takes about 21 days to actually develop a habit. So you are a third of the way there, okay? So just keep with it another two weeks. Maybe that thing that you're trying to incorporate into your life will like stick and catch and become a real habit. But whatever your new rhythm, your new habit is this year, um, good luck, Godspeed. I wish you all the best. Um, I'm looking forward to the gym being less busy in about two weeks, okay? So, um, but whatever your rhythm is, we're, we're beginning a rhythm this morning together. Maybe you're like, I didn't sign up for that. I didn't, I didn't sign up for you to incorporate a new habit into my life this morning, Jake. Well, don't worry the, that the new rhythm is for this semester, at least for the spring, we're going to be in this rhythm together where we're going to be looking at the greatest sermon ever preached which isn't this sermon, okay? <laughs> like, like, just to be clear on that greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, which certainly isn't this sermon, and it certainly is not this preacher. This sermon will probably not even make it in the top 10 of anyone's top 10 list of sermons. This sermon will probably go down as like the, the most ordinary of sermons in human history. But what I'm talking about is not this sermon, but is what is called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Now, Jesus never calls it the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew never calls it the Sermon on the Mount. The title Sermon on the Mount was given by Augustine in the 4th century. But nevertheless, these chapters and this sermon, or at least parts of this sermon, are some of the most famous parts of the entire Bible. I mean, even if you aren't a Christian or you're not familiar with the Bible, you are probably familiar with parts of the Sermon on the Mount and you don't even know it because it has incorporated itself into kind of like our common phraseology, phrases like they are the salt of the earth. When you're referencing someone who's maybe a good person or an honest person or things like the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself. That is from the Sermon on the Mount. And as the most famous sermon that's ever been preached, there have developed over the centuries a variety of ways to approach the Sermon on the Mount, a variety of ways to read it, a variety of ways to understand it, to interpret it, to apply it. 
and how you approach it will influence what you get out of it. Like with anything else, the way that you approach it will influence how you interact with it and what you get out of it. And so what I want to do this morning as we begin our 17-week series in the Sermon on the Mount is I want to help us know how to approach this greatest sermon that's ever been preached. And so in order for us to at least get a framework, I just want to kind of like lay some rails down that'll be helpful for us as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount over this semester. The, the, the framework that I want to do, I want to answer three questions this morning about the Sermon on the Mount. Three questions. And those three questions are, what is it? Who is it for? And how should we respond? What is the Sermon on the Mount? Who is the Sermon on the Mount for? And how should we respond to the Sermon on the Mount? Every week as we walk through these teachings, how should we respond? So first, what is it? Now, there are some common misconceptions that I think we need to be aware of as we walk through this Sermon on the Mount that, together this semester. And within each of these misconceptions, there, there is an element of truth. Like, like what, what I'm going to lay out for you, there's four common misconceptions. There's more than that, but we're just going to cover four. Within each of these four, there is an element of truth. But the problem is, is that if you approach the Sermon on the Mount only with one of these frameworks, you're going to miss the greater point, you're going to not be taking the Sermon on the Mount for what it is, for what Jesus intended it to be, and for why Matthew included it in his gospel. So if you're, if you're a visual person, we'll have a, little bit of, we'll have a little graph here that'll help you walk through these misconceptions here. So the first misconception of the Sermon on the Mount is that the Sermon on the Mount is a list of rigid pre-requirements pre that you must attain in order for God to be happy with you. Like, like, like this whole sermon is Jesus just laying out a bunch of rules that, hey, if you want God to be happy with you, if you want to be accepted by God, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, then these things need to be true of you in order for you to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. You could call this misconception the law approach or the law view. It's the approach that essentially says that if you want to be in the kingdom, you need to be this kind of person, so you better cross your T's and dot your I's. So every sermon with this approach would become a crushing call week after week after week simply towards obedience. Every sermon in the law approach would simply be me or one of us getting up here and saying, look how terrible you are, you need to do better. The clarion call of, those, of this approach is do more, do more, do more, be better, be better, be better, be better, be better. Which after 17 weeks would get a little redundant and quite a bit crushing. So that's the first approach, the law approach. But then on the flip side, there's another misconception that the Sermon on the Mount is that it, it's mainly about showing us about how, about how terrible we are but about how good Jesus is. So you're terrible, but don't worry about it because Jesus is great. Jesus already did all these things. So you don't need to do anything. You, you, you could call this, if the first approach is the law approach, the second approach is the grace approach. The grace 
approach. And the punchline of every sermon in the grace approach to the Sermon on the Mount, which is true, yes, we are terrible. And yes, Jesus is great. But if, if that is the punchline every week, we're actually going to miss what Jesus is getting across in his sermon. And we're going to miss why, why Matthew puts it in his gospel. See, this approach views this sermon as, as though there are no expectations on the lives of believers, but you're terrible, Jesus is good, so don't worry about obedience. Those are the first two approaches. The third approach, the third misconception, is that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' blueprint for social progress. You could call this the, the only present view. That, that this is Jesus giving societies a way to live, and if only a society would live this way, then we would be able to usher in heaven on earth. Like if everyone would just follow the Sermon on the Mount, then, then there would be no pain, there would be no suffering, there would be no strife, but everything would be this, like, this great utopia, which... Yes, it's true that if everyone lived according to the Sermon on the Mount, the world would be better, but as we're going to see, Jesus isn't bringing this sermon to the city councils. Jesus isn't bringing this sermon to the governing authorities. Jesus isn't walking up to the state capitol. He isn't marching with the Sermon on the Mount on, you know, on a sign or nailing it to the wall of the capital or presenting it before the legislature. So while living in, this, living in this way does and would make the world a better place, this is not Jesus's blueprint that he hands anyone in order to say, hey, just take this and then usher in a utopian future. Which by the way, the language that we see in the New Testament referencing the kingdom. I'll explain the kingdom here in just a little bit, but the language that we see in the New Testament referencing the kingdom or the kingdom of God is not language about building the kingdom, causing the kingdom to grow, or ushering in the kingdom. See, it's very important that we, that we care about the way that we say things because you may, you may often hear that, well, it's our job as Christians to build the kingdom. You don't see that in the New Testament. That it's our job as Christians to usher in the kingdom of God. You don't see that in the New Testament. That it's our job as Christians to cause the kingdom of God to grow. You don't see that in the New Testament. The verbs that you see in the New Testament in reference to the kingdom of God are to receive the kingdom, to enter the kingdom, to live as one who belongs to the kingdom. But the only present view sees the Sermon on the Mount as a way to usher in the kingdom, to cause the kingdom of God to grow. The only present view, the clarion call there is now, 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 now. All of this right now. And then finally, the fourth misconception is that one can treat the Sermon on the Mount as something that can't in any significant way be experienced now. That this is only something to happen in the future. That this is, the, this is a future view. That nothing about this sermon can have any impact on our world now. So we, so we should just hunker down. 
create a little Christian ghetto and just kind of hang on until Jesus comes back. And then all of these things will be true once he comes back. So if in the present view, it's now, 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 now. In the future view, it's later, 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 later. So those are some misconceptions about the Sermon on the Mount, but, but we're still trying to answer the question, well, then, then what is it? What is the Sermon on the Mount? Well, in order to understand this, what, what the Sermon on the Mount is, is that we need to zoom back a little bit and look at the Gospel of Matthew as a whole. You see, when Matthew, when he's writing his gospel, he has a specific audience in mind. It's, it's really interesting um, that, that whenever I'll go and preach anywhere else besides here, you would think that that would be kind of fun. You get to travel a little bit. You get to preach on different things or whatever. But it's actually a little stressful because when you go somewhere else besides like your home church, you actually don't know the people you're talking to as well. It really matters that when you're preaching something or you're writing something that you actually have in mind the audience that you're preaching to or writing to. And in the same way, Matthew has a specific audience in mind when he's writing his gospel. So while it's true that, yes, we are the audience right now, like, like Matthew's gospel is for us, it's also helpful for us to understand that we are not his first audience. That in fact, Matthew's audience, when he's writing the gospel of Matthew, is a Jewish audience. He was writing to the Jews at that time. And what Matthew wants his Jewish audience to ultimately understand is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That Jesus Christ is the king who had been foretold in the Old Testament. This is why if you read through the book of Matthew, you will find 66 references to the Old Testament. Why does Matthew do that? It's because he's writing to a Jewish audience and he's saying, hey, Jews, Jesus Christ is the king that your own scriptures had talked about. This is why at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 1.1, he says this. He says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why in the world would he start that way? It's because the Jews, one, were very concerned about lineage, about your background, but it's also because he knew that his Jewish audience was waiting for a king to come from the line of David. And so he's saying, hey, Jews, that king, that offspring of David that you have been waiting for, the Messiah who would come, Jesus Christ is him. He is the true and greater king that will sit on the true and greater throne of David. You see, the focal point, the whole focal point of, of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is king. Sorry, Kanye. Matthew beat you to it. Jesus is king. So it makes sense that if the focal point of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is king, that about that there would be about 47 references to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or just the kingdom itself. And so the answer to the question, what is the Sermon on the Mount all about? The Sermon on the Mount is about what it looks like to be part of the kingdom of God. what it looks like to be part of the kingdom of God. This is why we, before, so we just finished, obviously our Advent series, but before that we spent about a year and a half in the gospel of John. And, the, and you could, maybe if you thought about it for a little bit, you go, why in the world are we jumping into, into the gospel of Matthew if we just spent so much time in the gospel of John? It's because the gospel of John, of all the gospels, speaks the least about the kingdom of God. 
And so before we move on from the Gospels into other books, it's really important that we also understand this central theme that Jesus talks about in the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? We see it a lot in Matthew. Maybe you've heard it a lot in church. You've heard it, you've heard it from Christians, kind of maybe more the hip, artsy types, like just speak kind of vaguely about the kingdom of God. Yeah, just live in the kingdom. It's one of those terms that can sound kind of cool, that can sound kind of super spiritual. If you want to be like a super Christian, you talk about the kingdom a lot, but you never like specify what it is. So what is the kingdom? What is it? See, when we think of a kingdom, a lot of times what we think of is a place. We think of geography. But I think it's, it's more helpful for us to understand that in the ancient world, a kingdom was less about geography and was more about authority. We see this played out in Luke chapter 19, verse 12, when Jesus begins a parable talking about the kingdom, he says this. He says, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. You see that? A nobleman wants to receive a kingdom, so he goes somewhere else. He goes into a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. He went to a different place to receive a kingdom, which means that he went to a place not to receive a location, but to receive authority. So one way that might be helpful to think of the kingdom is to let's think about kingdom and to think more about kingship. You see, a kingdom is more about the kingly authority, which means that the kingdom of God is anywhere God's authority is experienced and submitted to. That is the kingdom of God. Anywhere that God's authority is experienced and submitted to. And what the Sermon on the Mount is, is it's Jesus' description of what it looks like to live under God's kingly authority. Or to put it another way, the Sermon on the Mount is about what it means to be a kingdom people living a kingdom life in a fallen world. If you want to know what the whole spring is going to be about, all of the variety of teachings that we're going to see in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it's about being a kingdom people living a kingdom life in a fallen world. So that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. Now the second question, who is it for? Who is the Sermon on the Mount for? If you have your Bibles open, Matthew chapter 4, the very end of Matthew chapter 4, we're going to jump into to verse 25. So Jesus is, is going all throughout Galilee. He's preaching the kingdom of God. He's healing a bunch of people. And then in verse 25, of chapter four, large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And then chapter five, verse one, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to teach him. His disciples came to him. Now, when we hear disciples, we often think of the 12, 12 disciples. But at this point in Matthew, Jesus had only called a couple of his disciples. And so disciples here is not necessarily a specific reference to the 12, but is more of a general reference to those who are followers of Jesus in general. And so this sermon, when Jesus sits down, this sermon is for people who want to know what it means to be part of Jesus's team. That's his disciples. There's a difference between the crowds and his disciples. What does it mean to be part of Jesus' teams? I want to follow Jesus. 
What does it mean to be on his team? Famous Welsh minister, Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you ever get a chance to read Martin Lloyd-Jones, I highly suggest reading Martin Lloyd-Jones. But he says this. He once said, the world today is looking for and desperately needs true Christians. Desperately needs true Christians. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' answer to the question, what does it look like to actually live as someone who is a follower of Christ? What does it look like to be on Jesus' team? You've probably been on a team before. You probably wore the jersey, got all the swag, but you know that being on a team is about much more than simply wearing the jersey, than simply getting the swag. Like there, there's, a di- there's a big difference between wearing the jersey and being part of the team. Like you can go to the games, you can wear the colors. You can say all of the first person plural pronouns you want. That, little, little soapbox here, okay. So I, I just think it's funny when, I'll say we, because I'm sure I've done this. When we'll use words like, in reference to a team that we really like, when we'll incorporate ourselves into the team, we did a great job this weekend. Like, you did not do anything this weekend. <laughs> you sat on your butt and ate Cheetos. Like, what did you do to contribute? You know, besides, besides funding it, maybe. You know, like, <laughs> like we, we won the World Series. No, you didn't. They won the World Series. You did nothing. Okay, but like, we want to feel like we're part of the team. Like, you can wear the jersey. You can get the colors. You can, you know, wave, like have the flag on your house and like all that stuff. And people can know that you really, really like that team. And you'll even say like, we did this. But there's a big difference between wearing a jersey or even liking a team and stepping onto the field. And the Sermon on the Mount is for those who are on the team. Those who actually want to submit to the good kingly authority of Jesus. See, the kingdom of God is the authority of God experienced and submitted to. The the Sermon on the Mount is for those who want to submit to God, who want to live under his authority according to his goals and objectives. That's part of being on a team, right? Like you don't just like identify, you don't just wear the jersey, you just say all the things. Like you actually pursue the goals and objections and objectives of the team, of the coach, and of the owner, right? It's pursuing the same objectives. Last summer, I, I refed a few of my daughter's soccer games. At the time, she was eight years old. So seven and eight-year-old girls' soccer, great opportunity. And, be- and before every second half, as I would be refing these games, um, every game needed this to happen. Before we start the second half, I'd stand in the middle of the field. I'd look to one side. I go, girls, which goal are you trying to get the ball into? And they'd all look at me and go, that one. Great. And then I'd turn around. 
I'm not assuming that they're making the connection. And I go, other team. Girls, which goal are you trying to get the ball into? That one. Because it was obvious in the first half that that was not obvious. <laughs> there was a little bit of confusion, right? They'd forget, and it's fine. Because it's seven and eight-year-old girls' soccer. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to get mixed up. But you know that at some point, if you're on a team and there's someone who says that they're on your team, maybe they, they got their jersey from somewhere, I guess. I don't know. And they say that they're on your team, but then they're constantly going to a different goal. And I'm not talking like because they're confused, because they're mixed up, because they're just learning, but like deliberately, consciously, stubbornly, going to a totally different goal, pursuing a totally different objective. You'd begin to wonder, what team are you actually on? Like, how did you get that jersey? Are you, are you, are you a spy? Some sort of saboteur? Like, what are you doing? You see, there's no teaching or example in the New Testament that the category of exists that you can have Jesus as your savior, but not have him as your master. No category. So the Sermon on the Mount is about life in the kingdom of God, life according to and under God's good rule and authority. The Sermon on the Mount is for followers of Jesus those who want to submit to his authority, who want to pursue his goals and objectives, who want to gladly walk in obedience to him. And so finally, how should we respond then? How should we respond as we walk through Jesus' teaching on what it means to submit to that authority and to live according to his ways? My prayer for each of us is that each week that as you and I sit under the authority and the teaching of Jesus, that the way that we would respond is that we would first take a good look at ourselves. That every week as we see these teachings, that we would take a good look at ourselves and that we would ask ourselves the question, does this describe the kind of person that I am? Does this describe the kind of life that I'm living? Does this describe the way that I think, the way that I feel, the way that I act, the, the patterns of my life? Like, does this describe that? To take a look at ourselves. But my prayer is that not only would we look at ourselves, because anyone can do that, but what Christians do is that in response to the word of God is that we look we look at ourselves, but then that we would look to Jesus. That we would look to the preacher. See, in, in most homiletics classes, homiletics is simply preaching classes, a principle that, that they'll generally teach you is that, it's, is that it's good as a preacher to try to draw as little attention to yourself 
as possible. The way that you act, the way that you dress, like you don't want people walking away and the only thing they remember is, man, that guy was really funny. Like that, that's, a, that's bad preaching actually because what we wanna do is we wanna lift high the word of God, magnify the name of Christ so that we would walk away from this place not saying, man, did that, what they were wearing was really interesting or man, they were so funny, but that, that, but that would go, wow, what a great God. Look how great Jesus Christ is. And so as preachers, what, what we try to do is we're trying to like, like fade in the background, like set the scriptures before you and then step out of the way. The Sermon on the Mount is the only sermon where the appropriate response after looking at ourselves is to pay a whole lot of attention to the preacher. And I don't mean me, I don't mean Cody, I don't mean any of us. What I mean is Jesus Christ, the preacher of this sermon that we would look at what he has done and that we would look at what he can do in and through us if we would continue to submit to his authority. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is not about you walking away, looking at yourself going, oh, I'm terrible, I need to do better. Though we may see that. But it's that as we go, oh, I'm terrible, I need to do better. We go, Jesus by your power, your strength, what you have accomplished on my behalf, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, do this in me? I cannot live this way in my own strength. But Jesus, you can live this way in and through me for my good and for your glory among the nations, that we would look to ourselves, that we would look to Jesus. My prayer is that, for the, sermon, that the Sermon on the Mount would be for us a mirror and a reflection a mirror and a reflection, a mirror that as we look at it, that we would see ourselves in it and in, in our deficiencies and God's grace in our lives. There may be things in, in the Sermon on the Mount that you go, praise God that this is an area of victory in my life. That'd be a mirror, but it would also be a reflection of who Christ is and the life that he wants to live through you by the power of the Spirit. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is gonna have a lot of things that will likely offend our senses and our sensibilities. There, there are things in the Sermon on the Mount that left to myself, I don't want to agree with. <laughs> left to myself, I go, oh, I'd maybe do it a little different, I don't know. Doesn't seem like that big of a deal. That will offend our senses our standards and our sensibilities. And when that happens, when we are confronted by Jesus' teaching over the course of this semester, the question of who is the ruler of my life? Whose kingship am I truly under? It's at that moment in the points of offense and the points of disagreement that we will have to answer. Is Jesus truly the good king of our lives or am I? Is Jesus truly the ultimate authority that I will submit to or am I? You see, if, if at the end of the day you are actually the, the ruler of your life, then when Jesus inevitably offends us, we're gonna find some sort of exception or excuse to get ourselves off the hook. Like, well, yeah, that's like gender, but man, my situation is different. 
But if Jesus is king, then when the offense comes, the only proper response is that we would bow in humble worship, knowing that his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, that he is so much higher and greater than us, that he knows better than we do, that he has a perspective that we don't have. But as a good father, he is leading us and guiding us into true flourishing within his kingdom, under his authority. So church, this semester, as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount, let's look at ourselves and let's look to Christ and let's joyfully participate in what he wants to do in us and through us as he shapes us into a kingdom people who live kingdom lives in a fallen world for our good and for his glory. Let's be that kind of people who submit to this good king this semester together. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we do submit to you. We don't make you king. You already are king. And we acknowledge this morning together that you are king of the universe, king of kings and lord of lords. But you are not a tyrant. You are not a dictator. You are not a malevolent ruler. You are a good king. So by the power of your Holy Spirit, would we be a people, would you shape us into a church that bows our knees to your good authority? Not begrudgingly, not hesitantly, but with eager joy, oh God, knowing that you are a good king and you will lead us to good places Help us to be this kind of people for our good and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.